Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to the Burning Books podcast where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there is something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today we're continuing on the first season of Pods. The season is called To Trilogy or Not To Trilogy. And over the season, we're looking at works that form parts of trilogies by Ford Maddox Ford, Pat Barker, Amitav Ghosh, Richard Ford, Josip Novakovic, and Roddy Doyle. Today's author is Elena Ferrante. Her novel is the first of what is actually a tetralogy called the Neapolitan Novels, and is entitled My Brilliant Friend, or L'Amica Geniale. In the original Italian, though probably not the original dialect of Neapolitan that is spoken throughout the book, and that's saying nothing about the pronunciation. My Brilliant Friend was published in 2012 and translated into English the same year by Anne Goldstein. The question in this episode is whether or not we've caught Ferrante fever. Elena Ferrante. You've heard about her. Ferrante was a well-known name in her native Italy and had work previously translated into English, but the Neapolitan novels, and more specifically the novel we're talking about today, My Brilliant Friend, vaulted her into the stratosphere. Take into account the fact that this book was about a close and crooked friendship between two girls on the cusp of and into adolescence, and my expectations could not be higher. Whether it's Ford Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, Tarje Vesas's The Ice Palace, or Paul Theroux's Servidia's Shadow, an all-time favorite. The subject of friendships that span love and cruelty are a point of fascination for me. So, ding, ding, ding. The two girls in this friendship, or as it is quickly established, friendship of sorts, are the narrator, Elena, and the subject of the book, the brilliant friend, Lila. The time is early to mid-1950s. The place is a poor section of Naples. It's a squalor that I recognize from the excellent novellas of Leonardo Sciascia, like The Day of the Owl, which takes place in a part of rural Sicily. But whereas the stories of Sciascia, love that name, it's like a new species of feline or something, whereas those stories evoke poverty in a few strokes, my brilliant friend goes for the more granular view, and by granular I mean like chewing on sand, or vegetables that have not been properly washed, full of grit. Here is an example. Lila climbed up to Signora Spagnolo's ground floor window, and hanging from the iron bar that the clothesline was attached to, swung back and forth, then lowered herself down to the sidewalk, and I immediately did the same, although I was afraid of falling and hurting myself. This is not a neutral description. This world is home to a lot of fear and hatred, as the narrator tells us often and directly. And in fact, I found the pages of my brilliant friend to be sopping with misery. I feel no nostalgia for our childhood. It was full of violence. The women fought among themselves more than the men. They pulled each other's hair, they hurt each other. To cause pain was a disease. Lila, the brilliant friend, is both of a piece with and distinct from her squalid context. She can be a cretin, no doubt about it. Manipulative, capricious, violent, cruel, like many of those around her, but generally better at being all those things. 
And at the same time, she shines from these worn and dull surroundings. She's brilliant in her manipulations, violence, cruelty, but also in an intellectual sense where she is effortlessly superior to her peers. Take the following contrasting scenes. The first scene is the day that little Elena and Lila play with each other's dolls. The second scene transpires somewhat later in a moment before class. So here's the first with the dolls. Lila knew that I had that fear. My doll Tina talked about it out loud. And so on the day we exchanged our dolls for the first time, with no discussion, only looks and gestures, as soon as Lila had Tina, she pushed her through the grate and let her fall into the darkness. Lovely. And now the classroom, where Leela's mother, Mrs. Cherulo, has been called from home to witness what could pass in these parts for a miracle. The teacher took a piece of chalk and wrote on the blackboard, Son. Then she asked Leela, Who taught her to read? Signora Cherulo, eyes lowered, said, Not me. But at your house or in the building, is there someone who might have taught her? Signora Cerullo shook her head, no, emphatically. Then the teacher turned to Lila and with sincere admiration asked her in front of all of us, Who taught you to read and write, Cerullo? Lila Cerullo, that small dark-haired, dark-eyed child in a dark smock with a red ribbon at the neck and only six years old, answered, Me. Lila's precocity extends to all realms. Though she is physically a late bloomer, flat-chested, with a period that is delayed in arriving, compared to Elena and her other friends, Leela is miles ahead, able to read and respond to boys, as well as to threaten and beat them up if necessary. And though she stops going to school because her family chooses not to spend money on her, that does not halt Leela's intellectual development, as she uses the public library and her own wits to outsmart Elena, who continues in class. No wonder, then, that Elena says at a certain point. This entire period had a similar character. I soon had to admit that what I did by myself couldn't excite me. Only what Leela touched became important. This period can basically stand for the rest of the book. As for the rest of the story, well, to be frank, I have very little will to talk about it. That's because my brilliant friend, sapped my strength. It sapped my strength, dried my eyes to the point of irritation, got stuck between my teeth. Obviously, I'm not holding back, but let me just have the pleasure of catharsis, of getting the bile out. I had a great deal of difficulty reading this book. If there's one word that kept popping into my mind as I was reading it, it was the word humorless. There's no questioning the thought that went into this book. There's no doubt that the author has long ruminated over her subject. The plausibility of the characters and the actions, the jealousy and obsession at the center of the relationship between Elena and Leela, between everybody and Leela, all of that is unimpeachable. But does it matter if this book is going to be repetitive and worse, at least in my view, devoid of humor? And by humor, I don't mean knee-slapping, but humor more generally, a way of seeing the world, a measure of intrigue or charm. Because it had none of these things, despite being a novel filled with nostalgia and longing, it left me stone cold. All that blood that is in the book is frozen to the touch. In truth, this started when I turned against the narrator, and that didn't take much time. 
about that narrator. Here is a person who has been unable to deal with her past, despite becoming a writer, seemingly for the purpose of documenting this past. That's an interesting conundrum. But that narrator makes little of it. The document she produces is, as I said, bone dry. There's so much desperation in these pages to get things down, to keep the past from being erased, that there's little room for other emotion or joy. Again, I'm not saying joy in the sense of cotton candy and aren't we all having a great time, but joy in the sense of writing the story, joy in the art of creating, wonder at the way that we can recreate the past. I didn't find any of that here. No second level, no self-interest or self-reflection. And I mean self-reflection that leads to any kind of maturity on the part of the author. She's not someone who I found developed. She was more of a weather vane, a precipitation monitoring system, a wind balloon. So while the central insight of the writing was interesting, the idea that someone so young, untutored, barely cared for as Lena could show such precocity, I was looking for more. On the one hand, the character is certainly a finer and defiantly unusual version of a trend we've seen in much recent fiction, a deviation from the remarkably self-possessed child who speaks in full sentences and tells the adults around them how to behave and react and think. Lila does these types of things, but not with wonderfully full paragraphs of perfectly rounded thought. She does them with action and she does them over time, and all that is excellent. It makes her not at all cloying, but Neither does it make her more interesting. But once again, not falling into the traps as other writers have is only a first step. Reading this book was like getting caught in a cycle, and it is a cycle. It's a cycle of misery, sadness, small tragedies. It's an unrelieved cycle, noon all day. At a certain point, it became claustrophobic for me. Is the book successful in what may very well have been its intentions? Certainly, but for this reason, I found it too little to carry me through. It's possible that more happens in the following volumes, but it's unlikely I'll ever get there. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Pat Barker's Regeneration, the opening volume of her World War I Regeneration trilogy. Poetry, psychoanalysis, cameos by other authors, I can't wait. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, which is spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. On Twitter, there's at Burning Books Pod, and if you're on Facebook, I can be reached at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the show. Aluminium. Aluminium. And as always, go Jays.